This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I am looking for Molly. I've been searching everywhere and I can't seem to find Molly. 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 In 2013, Molly. the rapper Tyga had a hit on his hands when he sampled an earlier song by DJ Cedric Gervais. They, or maybe their AI assistants, were looking for the drug Molly, also known as ecstasy or MDMA. In 2021, 2.2 million Americans did the same, including some of you. When I did ecstasy for the first time, I understood exactly why it was called the love drug. It should be studied for clinical viability. It should be used. I have never felt such a healing after I've come off of something. You will talk about things that you have been scared to talk about before. You will deepen your connection and create lasting feelings. And you'll also have the time of your life. MDMA users take the drug despite it being illegal, but that could soon change. MDMA therapy seems to sort of catalyze a process of self-healing where people then know how to work with later stress, and it seems to confer some form of resilience. That was Dr. Emma Hapke, who's researching MDMA. In 2017, based on evidence from clinical trials, the FDA granted breakthrough therapy status, putting it on the fast track for approval. That could happen within the year. We'll hear more about that later on in the hour. But first, we'll start the discussion by getting into the social, political, and cultural history of MDMA after this quick break. I'm Dessa, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us. We've got a lot to get into. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor Greenlight. Want to teach your kids financial literacy? With Greenlight, kids and teens use a debit card of their own, while parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and savings in the app. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash NPR. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL. Because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get into the conversation and welcome science journalist Rachel Neuer, who joins us from Pennsylvania. Her new book is called I Feel Love, MDMA and the Quest for Connection in a Fractured World. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Tessa. Yes, I'm, I'm just in Pennsylvania for today. Normally, I would be joining you from Brooklyn. Okay, well, that's easier to say. You know what I mean? Doesn't have the diphthong <laughs> at the end. Keep the vowels clean. Uh, you just wrote a new book called I Feel Love, MDMA and the quest for connection in a fractured world. Thank you so much for joining us remotely. Super happy to be here. Okay, uh, MDMA is known by a couple of names. Hit me with them. All right, Molly, 
ecstasy. Uh, if you want to get real old school, you can call it Adam, as the therapists did back in the 1970s. That kitty drug. I know that was sometimes <laughs> that what police drug enforcers and- called it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what happens? What happens to your in your brain when you take it? But also, just like how does it feel? What's the subjective experience of oh, being man. intoxicated? Uh, so I guess anyone who's ever been on a drug that messes with consciousness probably understands that it's difficult to put into words how that feels. Uh, for me, I I prefer to do MDMA in a recreational setting. I've never done it therapeutically, so I can't speak to that subjective experience. But uh, the first thing I notice when I am coming up on the drug is that I start to smile. And, mm. you know, I'm just smiling for no reason because I'm suddenly just feeling happy, light, energized, like all my anxieties and worries are melting away. All my neuroses are gone. I don't have this annoying mental chatter about, you know, what did I do earlier today? Did I say the right thing? What do I need to do tomorrow? It just melts away and I can really be fully in the moment. And it physically feels good too. You've got serotonin flooding your brain. You've got oxytocin and you get this feeling of ravers like to call it rolling. You're rolling on these waves of euphoria and happiness and you just feel really connected to yourself, to other people on the dance floor, you know, even to all of humanity, to the environment, to the whole world. And I know the book centers on some of your experience as well as a ton of research. What was your first encounter with MDMA? Like what prompted it and how to go? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I will say that I am the least interesting part of this book. You know, I, I hit on myself in the introduction just to sort of be like, readers, this is why I did this. But mm-hmm. then I get out of the way for the incredible stories of other people's lives around that have shaped this molecule across time. Uh, For me, I was a dare kid. You know, I was born in 1985, so I've never been in a world in which MDMA was actually legal. I was raised on just say no messages. You know, I literally had the dare t-shirt. I was straight edge in high school, even in college. Hit me me with straight edge. We're talking like Sharpies, Sharpie X's on the back (laughs) of your hand. Like you're listening to Fugazi or what? Oh, my God. I had friends with the X's. (laughs) I did have friends. I wasn't that hardcore. I was just like quietly straight edge. That was my Uh, MO. And straight edge means, of course, for listeners who might not be familiar. Hit me. Oh, yeah. Uh, No drugs, no alcohol. I mean, you know, I, I drink Frappuccinos, so, you know. Spicy. Coffee is mind-altering, but, you know, that was about as far as mm. I took it. Um, then what changed? Yeah. I mean, I had a friend who introduced me to mushrooms in college, so that was a change. Um, it was like, whoa, consciousness. This is really interesting stuff, peeking behind this curtain and just seeing what your mind can produce. Uh, then, you know, I, I kind of went on with my career, and I just sort of got bored with regular reality. You know, I was craving a new experience. I was looking for novelty. Um, I love to travel around the world. And I just Mm -hmm. thought, you know, it would be kind of cool to do some traveling in my mind. And I happened to date and eventually marry a former 90s raver kid. And he told me about all these cool stories from his raving days in Denver, you know, in the late 90s. And it just sounded really cool. And I was like, I want to try this ecstasy thing. You dug it. I dug it. Yeah. Well, I I first had to find out that it's not called ecstasy anymore. So I was such a nerd, like asking around Brooklyn in like 2015 for ecstasy. <laughs> and someone quietly pulled me to the side and was like, hey, it's not called that anymore. So uh, I think I just my- had that experience right now. Okay. <laughs> oh, we all Sorry. age. Um, and, you know, you focus a lot on the book in the 
the feeling of human connectedness that MDMA can foster. And you had a particularly resonant experience of that like connected feeling during the COVID lockdown, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like I said, I'm really a recreational MDMA user. Never used it for therapy myself. But I think the closest I came was during lockdown. And, you know, this was... Uh, for listeners who were in New York, you probably remember just the eerie silence outside, broken only by ambulances, the empty streets, just the extreme isolation and like anxiety and terror, not knowing when any of this would end or you know when the virus was going to come for you. And my husband and I and a friend in our our COVID pod decided, you know, we're gonna do some MDMA, whatever. We're gonna do it at home. I'd never done it in that context. Um, my friend put together a really killer disco playlist and Hmm. you know it was really fun it turns out doing mdma at home is just as fun as in a club in some ways but i had this really profound feeling at the time of like you said extreme connectedness i really felt for everybody else who was out there in lockdown you know sort of we're all alone but we're together in our aloneness and it was this beautiful feeling my heart really went out to everyone who was also experiencing this terror people who had lost loved ones And that was actually when I had the idea to write this book. And let's get into the book, you know, which delves, it takes a really deep dive into the history and the cultural ramifications that this drug had. Can we kind of start at the beginning with the synthesis? It was Mm -hmm. developed or synthesized for the first time in 1912 by the pharmaceutical company Merck. How did that happen? Yeah, so uh, Christmas Eve, 1912, Merck the German pharmaceutical company filed a patent for MDMA, but they weren't actually looking for MDMA. It was just this chemical intermediary on, I guess, the steps they needed to reach this blood clotting agent they were trying to to get to. They deny ever discovering MDMA's psychoactive properties. There's there's some questions about that story. Um, I really wanted to do some research in their archives, but they actually stopped responding to me. So, you know, fishy, fishy. Um, the next time MDMA really pops up in history is the 1950s. It caught the attention of the U.S. Army during the Army and the CIA's uh, really unethical search for chemical truth serums. You know, they were experimenting on soldiers, on unwitting patients, on even U.S. citizens. We don't actually know if the Army gave MDMA to people. Uh, there is some circumstantial evidence suggesting so, but there's no sort of smoking gun document mm-hmm. that proves that. And the next time it pops up, it started uh, appearing in raids, seizures of drugs that the federal government was making, first in Chicago and then in a couple other places around the country. And this was 1971, 1972, right after the Controlled Substance Act had passed. And the thought there is that chemists were trying to skirt the law because the closely related molecule MDA had just been controlled. So they were sticking this in methyl group on MDA to make it MDMA to try to get around the law. Um, and after that, that's that's when the, the MDMA story really takes off in 1975. And when the it remains illegal at the moment. It was banned mm-hmm. in 85. While 85. Reagan, right? Okay, well, Reagan was in office. And Reagan, of course, is remembered for the so-called war on drugs, which started in the 1970s but intensified under his administration. You know what? Let's hear it. Let's hear it from Reagan. We're making no excuses for drugs, hard, soft, or otherwise. Drugs are bad, and we're going after them. As I've said before, we've taken down the surrender flag and run up the battle flag, and we're going to win the war on drugs. 
And if you're just joining us, yeah, <laughs> we got a little, <laughs> a little editorial, well. a little editorial sound there from Rachel Noir, who we are talking to. She is a scientist, excuse me, a science journalist and author of the new book, "I Feel Love: MDMA and the Quest for Connection in a Fractured World." Okay, so why did MDMA get banned in '85? Yeah, so. Um in 75, it was sort of rediscovered, and it became this favorite tool of therapists, starting in the Bay Area and spreading all around the country and even beyond. And therapists were quietly using this drug in pretty much any kinds of psychotherapy you can think of, couples therapy, trauma, just kind of getting to know yourself stuff. But they kept quiet about it because they knew, hey, this is a drug that makes you feel good, and any drug that makes you feel good, people are going to want to take recreationally. And lo and behold, that's what happened. It sure. escaped from the therapist's couch, as people like to say, onto the dance floor, and it caught the attention of the DEA. So the DEA went to Schedule MDMA um, in 1985. They wanted to put on Schedule 1, which is the super strictly controlled substances, You know, currently no uh, medical value, high potential for abuse, things like heroin. This group of therapists and scientists, people even from like Harvard, got together and fought the DEA on this and argued that it should be Schedule 3, which would let them continue using it medically and in research. They actually won their case. The administrative law judge sided with them and said, yes, MDMA should be Schedule 3. But the DEA didn't have to follow that judgment. It was just a recommendation. Mm. So they just threw it out and did what they wanted to do all along, which was Schedule MDMA. And. When you talk about the escape that the that MDMA made from the therapist couch to the dance floor, like what about that was such a death knell for the chemical in and of itself? I mean, you kind of hinted at it there, but you do this kind of interesting comparison, I thought, in the book between the parallel tracks, not the same, but the parallel tracks that like an MDMA and an LSD, which has been often talked about in the news and elsewhere, you know, they've got these trajectories that sort of rhyme. And one point mm. that you brought up was like, this feels too good. People are going to like, America has an issue with pleasure. We've got yeah. this like inherited puritanical, mm. like, what? quit smiling. Like, do you think that that <laughs> was part of what led to its initial you know, scheduling, which is to say it being rendered contraband? Yeah, 100%. I mean, part of the scheduling protocol was like, oh, this drug is being used a lot. So that was part of the definition. And like MDMA was definitely being used a lot, but it was being used a lot for fun. Like somehow it's okay to take drugs, you know, every single day, like SSRIs or whatever, if it's like fixing you somehow. But mm. if you just want to get you know, above baseline to actually thrive, to feel connected, to feel happiness. Like that's somehow a no-no. Um, unless, of course, the drug is alcohol. We give a big carve out for alcohol and um, yeah. But even back in the LSD days before LSD was banned and there was starting to be this frenzy about it, um, you know, not just tied to the political stuff with the hippies, but also biological stuff like, oh, LSD might damage our chromosomes. There was scientists that came out and said, you know, we we really need to be worried about a drug that gives people such pleasurable effects. Like the human brain isn't built to to manage all this pleasure. There has to be repercussions. We're discussing the political, social, and cultural history of MDMA. Some psychiatrists say the drug has a unique and powerful ability to help heal trauma. Dr. Michael Mithofer is researching its effect on patients with PTSD. We'll be back with more in just a moment. 
Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. What's happening on NPR Podcasts? More neighborhoods and more perspectives. The more of the world that you hear, the more you hear the world as it really is. NPR Podcasts. More voices. All ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr. Join me each week on In Black America as we profile current and historically significant figures whose stories help illuminate life in Black America. You don't want to miss the conversation. KUT Radio and Black America are members of the NPR Network. Thanks for listening to In Black America. Let's get back to the conversation. Dr. Emma Hapke is a psychiatrist researching the medical value of MDMA. It's an 18-week protocol. There's three MDMA sessions, which are eight hours long each. And there's two therapists that are present for the entire duration of the treatment. So you have your three MDMA sessions, but you also have 12 preparatory and integrative psychotherapy sessions kind of nested around those MDMA sessions. And it's typically a male and female therapist who kind of create that uh, container. Dr. Hapke spoke to the CanBind program, a mental health series on YouTube. People that got the active drug versus the placebo group. So people got the active drug 67%. So two thirds no longer met criteria for PTSD at the end of the protocol. So that's really promising. And that's we're seeing a larger effect size, greater results than we see in some of the other treatments for PTSD, which are some SSRI medications and other forms of psychotherapy. Okay, Rachel, I want to talk more about the latest research into the therapeutic value of MDMA. In 2017, based on evidence from clinical trials, the FDA granted breakthrough therapy status. What does that mean in practice? It means that this is an experimental new drug that shows exceptional promise, um, and they're fast-tracking it just because the results from the phase two trials were so, I don't want to say incredible, but... uh, Mm -hmm. Promising. And what is it potentially used to treat? What conditions? So uh, the furthest evidence we have along is MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD. So that's the trials that people have probably seen in the news or heard about on the radio. Um, There are two phase three trials needed to be completed before the FDA grants approval for MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD. The first of those trials was published in 2021, and the second is now undergoing scientific peer review. As soon as that paper is published, um, the uh, MAPS, which is the group that's sponsoring these trials, can apply for a new drug application from the FDA. And we're looking at MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD being approved around this time next year, potentially. Um, 
that said, there's been a bunch of other trials into other things like social anxiety for autistic adults, alcohol use disorder, um, couples therapy, and some people are even looking into things like obesity and eating disorders. And do we know how it works or why it works? That's or a great seems question. There's- to work, I should say, yeah. Yeah. So um, one big caveat just to emphasize is that this only works in therapy. So, um, you know, there are exceptions. There's exceptions to every rule, but mostly people are not going to a rave, dropping some ecstasy and then coming out with their PTSD magically resolved. That's not how it works. You really have to go into a therapeutic experience with your mind set to engage with your trauma or engage with your social anxiety or whatever it is you want to address and then have that professional guidance of a therapist to help you along. The way it actually works, there's some really fascinating neuroscience that's come out in the last few years. And it seems that under that set and setting, that therapy, MDMA reopens in the brain what is called a critical period. And uh, this is a neuroscience term for these finite windows of malleability in the brain. They usually occur in childhood. And the reasons they exist are to help us learn the skills and the habits we need to set us up for a lifetime of success. So think about the ease at which a child learns a new language versus um, like me. I cannot learn a new language. It's really hard. But what MDMA does under the therapeutic guidance is reopen a social reward learning critical period. So it's literally allowing people to go in and rewire their neurons and unform these harmful habits that they've built up around their trauma and reevaluate that narrative they've been telling themselves. Um, so that's why it seems like this treatment has such long lasting effects for something that you only do, you know three times rather than take a pill every day. Mm. And you stressed set and setting, meaning these are supervised guided experiences with a professional who's trained to conduct them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the really fascinating thing about this set and setting piece is that neuroscientists think that we might be able to tune that. So if you do MDMA and then instead of going into talk therapy about your trauma, you go into occupational therapy to treat, say, your um, mobility issues from a stroke, might we be able to reopen a motor learning critical period and help people recover movement they've lost from a stroke? Or, you know, someone who lost their smell during COVID, maybe we can retrain them to do that with MDMA and the appropriate set and setting. Is that last one being studied? The smell thing? Yeah. Uh, It's not, but it's like in the sort of intellectual pipeline. So the stroke stuff is being pursued at Johns Hopkins University. They're trying to get money for it now. But, you know, if the stroke thing works, then it's this proof of concept that MDMA and actually other psychedelic drugs could be a sort of master key for opening critical periods, depending on the sudden setting. And I know that this the granting of this breakthrough therapy status, you know, allows a lot of this research to continue. It can open the doors for new research. And if we pull the lens back from the U.S. and look elsewhere mm. in February of this year, Australia became the first country to designate psychedelics as medicine, specifically MDMA and psilocybin or magic mushrooms. How close is the U.S. to FDA approval of MDMA? Yeah, it's I mean, the most optimistic Roadmap is by this time next year, Uh MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD will have approval from the FDA. I mean, bureaucracy, though, it's taken like 38 years basically to get to this point. So there could definitely be some, you know, hurdles 
people run into. Once it is approved for PTSD, though, doctors, if they want, can prescribe it off-label for other things. Hmm. Does the U.S. face a different, like, cultural attitude that would present a higher fence to have to jump Mm. than other countries do because of our attitudes about drugs? I mean, unfortunately, we have exported that attitude all around the world. You know, like, uh, most European countries have that attitude, with the exceptions being, like, places like the Netherlands or Portugal. Uh, you know, look at England. They're they're the UK. They're just as puritanical and draconian about their drug laws as we are, if not more. Um, but yeah, I do think that sensibilities are changing. I think marijuana has really paved the way for that in a lot of ways. You know, medicalization uh, paved the way for legalization in a bunch of states, and that's kind of the hope here. Just you know, once you show a substance that's been, you know, demonized and banned has medical utility and great value, people start to wonder, like, wait a minute, why are we putting people in jail for this? Like, why is this off limits? People start asking questions. And even with it currently uh, a Schedule One drug, we're receiving some listener comments about people's experiences. Andrew emails us, my wife and I responsibly use MDMA every three to four months in order to have a love night and check in with our relationship. Not only does it make you feel good, but it allows you to be completely honest about things you wouldn't normally say. The whole truth comes out, and acceptance is given. It's amazing. Which very much resonates with Kara, who emails us, My husband and I take MDMA together every four months. It is complete ego death and allows us to talk about things that would usually be scary, as well as allows us to hear what is being said without defensiveness. Our relationship is full of love, support, and safety, I truly believe that MDMA plays a big part. It's a year's worth of couples therapy in just a few hours. I choose to believe that Andrew is married to Kara and are currently having a do you like pina coladas moment live on her. And here is another message from you. This is Steve. He said he tried MDMA in the 1980s. The most incredible, fun, mind-popping drug that I've ever done. And, and I tried it again when I moved to L.A., And it was one of the worst experiences because it was not the same drug. It was cut with something. I felt cold. I felt sweaty. I didn't want to be around anybody. Thank you for sharing that story. And as we'll touch on again, MDMA, when taken recreationally, does present risks. In crowded, hot settings like clubs, users are more prone to hypertension or overheating. Um, I remember, as, as well as you mentioned, Rachel, those really scary stories. And you hear terms like being boiled alive in your skin. Yeah, this like really serious fear of overheating. Uh, What are the dangers of MDMA? And how legitimately, like how are those considered in the FDA's approval process? Well, um, it is really important to separate the recreational or, you know, let's say illegal use from the clinical use. In clinical trials, there have been no serious side effects. Um, You know, we're we're talking like some nausea, some jaw clenching, but you're definitely not going to get hyperthermia in a clinical trial because you're, you know exactly what you're getting, the dose is right, and you also have medical professionals there, and you're not like dancing around in a crowded dance floor. Um, so most hyper, uh, overheating is definitely the biggest risk of taking, uh, let's say, MDMA. What is actually MDMA? I'm going to put the issue of tainted drugs aside. Um, you know, you're, you're dancing 
resting for hours, you're not drinking water, you're not taking breaks, you can really easily overheat because MDMA increases your heart rate, increases your blood pressure, it increases the amount of heat your body's producing, but at the same time, it constricts your uh, blood vessels so you're not re- um, emitting all that heat. So that's the biggest risk. Um, there's also an issue of drinking too much water on MDMA. Uh, there's been some deaths because of this. Um, especially in premenstrual women, our hormones cause us to retain more water and it also messes with our sodium potassium pumps in our brain. Can I interrupt so, you? Just because oh, I yeah. think a lot of listeners are between. Did you say premenstrual or yes. perimenstrual? Or, or per, okay. <laughs> oh, premenstrual. Okay. Sorry, uh, premenopausal. So sorry. Okay, yeah. Premenopausal. pre-menopausal yes. Sorry. Uh, thank you for catching that. Yeah. Premenopausal women are especially at risk of drinking too much water. Um, MDMA causes you retain, to retain water as well. So people who try to overcompensate for this, uh, for the overheating thing, they're like, oh, I have to drink a lot of water. You wind up um, lowering the sodium levels in your blood, which causes your brain cells to swell with water, which can be fatal. So the rule of thumb there is to hydrate well before you do MDMA and then just drink water to replace whatever you sweat. And, you know, even in the supervised clinical trials of MDMA where those sort of physiological outcomes are avoided. It's not an entirely sunny story. I know that The Cut spoke to a participant of a trial for its podcast, Cover Story, Power Trip. Let's hear a bit of that. As I was coming down off the medicine, there was just this like deep knowledge that something had been like left wide open and completely unresolved and like Hell was inside of me and was only halfway out, and it got stuck. I felt like I got stuck. And several trial participants said that the MDMA therapy left them feeling abandoned in their trauma. The cut also pointed out to the limited numbers of survey participants. Rachel, do you have a sense of whether there is enough data at this point to feel confident about MDMA's effects? Um, I will say that the clinical trial results are very encouraging and they're good enough, it seems, for the FDA. You know, these are really, really great results. Something like 66% of participants after three sessions spaced a month apart came out without a diagnosis of PTSD, but that leaves the other one third of participants. You know, some had pretty good results, um, but Every medication, no matter what it is, is not going to work for everybody. In terms of the clips you played from the cut, um, one thing I think that really speaks to for MDMA-assisted therapy specifically is going back to that reopening of the critical period. So, you know, these participants are literally going back to this open state where they're interacting with their trauma in a really visceral, real way. And if you don't take care of those participants, you know, if you have a, like, I'm not saying anything about the therapists in the trial, but if one would have a, say, bad therapist or one doesn't get the right care after going through that experience, the trauma can actually be worsened. So it really speaks to the importance of having trained, professional, good therapists. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the conversation, Rachel, now about MDMA is paving the way for a broader conversation for our consideration of use of other psychedelic drugs um, and I know that we, we're also having kind of parallel conversations about cannabis and psilocybin, which has been, you know, in regions of uh, – has been decriminalized in regions. So how does how does MDMA's story fit into this broader push? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, MDMA and psilocybin have kind of been on parallel tracks time-wise. Um, it's just been different groups over the last three decades pushing for them. Um, so MAPS, uh, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, has been leading the push to bring MDMA back into the light of scientific respectability, whereas researchers at Johns Hopkins and the Hefner Institute have been doing psilocybin. So they have both been you know, moving things along the clinical trial path. And uh, the NIH actually just issued its first grant, I think it was last year, to support a psilocybin therapeutic study, which is like the first time this has happened. And the the hope and the suspicion is that that will open the doors for lots more government funding into the therapeutic effects of these drugs, not just MDMA and psilocybin, but a whole host like LSD, Ibogaine, those things. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. She's a science journalist and the author of I Feel Love, MDMA and the Quest for Connection in a Fractured World. Rachel Noor. Today's producer was Avery Jessa Chapnick. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Dessa. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Homes.com. What kind of programs does this school have? How are the test scores? These are all things parents ask when they home shop. That's why each listing on Homes.com includes extensive reports on local schools. Homes.com. We've done your homework. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Lisa. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Visit lisa.com to learn more. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. 